Our uh, scripture passage for this morning uh, comes from Luke chapter 23. Um, We'll be reading from verses 42 through to 56. And this is what it says. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness had come over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God saying, this man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with the plans and the actions. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock, where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then he returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the command. This is the word of God. It's good to be with you. My name is Stephen Cole. I'm an associate pastor here at WDBC. I've been here four years, and this is my uh, third time preaching a Good Friday message, so... Hats off to me, you must really love me preaching these messages. <laughs> uh, but I, I do say that with uh, just a lot of gratitude and a lot of honour. I can't uh, personally imagine a greater time to be allowed to preach than to bring everyone to the recognition of what Jesus did for us uh, upon, upon the cross. My first message uh, that I preached on Good Friday was found in Luke 23, 26 to 31, and we looked at the shame it was for Simon the Cyrene to to carry the cross for Jesus, and to look at the women uh, who lamented behind Jesus as he walked up to to Calvary. My second one that I did last year uh, was about Barabbas and about Pilate and Jesus, and how both of them were kings of a sort, or both had authority, and how they used that authority, one to save and one to save his own skin. Seemed fitting to me, since as I've been in the Luke passages for the last two Good Fridays, to do this next one of Jesus' death and what happens to his body afterwards. And so what I want to do is look at his death and how it occurred, and then look at the people's responses when they see his lifeless, dead body upon the cross. And so to do that, we're going to go through Luke 23, 42, to 56. Uh, Before Jesus' death, he he once taught a parable. And as he was speaking, 
he talked about a landowner who had a vineyard. You've probably heard this parable multiple times. And this landowner goes out into the marketplace and he calls people to come work in his, in his vineyard. He goes out early in the morning and calls people in and, and they come and work and the agreed price is the denarius. And so they come according to the labor. And then he goes back into the marketplace and he sees more people. And this is about nine o'clock in the morning and he says, well, you guys come and work for me too. And so they come and work as well. And then he goes again at 12 and he sees more people not doing anything and he calls them again. And then again at three, he calls more people to come and work. And then even again at five, just one hour before the day is over, he calls even more people to come and do some work in his vineyard. After they all do their work and the day is over and they need to be paid, the landowner gets the manager of the property and says, look, I want you to pay them all the denarius but I want you to pay them a certain way. You see, most of us look at the parable and we go, oh, it's great, they all get the same amount, which is beautiful, and we're going to look at something like that in this story today. But the real tension in that parable is actually how they're paid. You see, he says to the manager, I want you to start with the person that came last, and I want you to pay that one first. And then I want you to move your way to the one who came first, and I want you to pay him last. You see, if he paid it the other way around, you would have went away with your denarius and went, well, that's the agreed price and that's fine. But the man actually serves the last first. And so all the people at the end of the line are sitting there going, well, payday is going to look better for me. But it doesn't. It just comes down to the denarius. They all receive the same thing. And they grumble and they complain. And Jesus is teaching the parable because God is gracious and generous, and even to come and work in his field is grace to you. To come to God, to work, to be a part of it is grace to you. Had he not called you, you never would have been there in the first place. Now why am I telling you this parable? Because I want the imagery and I want the language to stick into your head because I'm going to use it as we go through the sermon. We're going to look at different people groups and the way that they respond to Jesus. And there are five of these. There are five people who go out to work in the field, in that parable, and there are five groups of people that respond to Jesus on the cross. And not that these are five groups of people that you have to respond exclusively to this way, but I want to use this as a means to help you in your own faith understand and see who Jesus is. So in effect, the sermon will look something like those, this. Those who are called to work in the last hour in the parable, they correlate to the thief upon the cross. Those he called to work in the late afternoon correlate to the centurion at Jesus' feet. Those who called, were called to work midday correlate to the crowds who watched on. Those who were called to work in the morning correlate to the disciples and those who were called to work at first light before the sunrise correlate to Joseph. And that's how we'll work through today. What I hope my message achieves for you, the listener, firstly, I hope that it magnifies the beauty of your Lord Jesus on the cross, that that is where you see him. And that it highlights in you your dependency, my dependency, our dependency for the grace of God that is found there. Secondly, I want to beautify 
the different responses that people have to the same Jesus who was crucified for them. So that we can not only celebrate the Messiah and what he has done, but we can celebrate each other. I hope this message helps you just see a little bit more of your own faith, but it illuminates your eyes to those around you. And lastly, what I pray this message does in your heart is it brings comfort and joy. (coughs) Silly. That it brings relief and thanksgiving. That you find the rest you so desperately know that you need. With that, I'll pray and then we'll move in. Heavenly Father, help us give pause to the significance of today. The day that your son was slain in our place. The day that he offered himself to you, Lord, so that we might have relationship, that we might have the removal of guilt and sin upon our lives, and that we might receive salvation. We thank you for him, and we praise you for your will and your works and your ways. And I pray that today people might find rest in you. Amen. I already knew I was going to be a little bit sad today, but so you have to bear with me. So we begin uh, where we, where we last left off with the, the penitent criminal on the cross. And he has just finished kind of rebuking the other guy on the other side of Jesus. Because he's kind of taunting Jesus, saying, you're the Messiah, get down off the cross. And this other guy looks at him and he says, you know, you and me are rightfully getting what we deserve being up here. The life that we live deserves what happens to us. But this man, Jesus, is innocent and it is not good what is happening to him. And upon his confession of Jesus' innocence and Jesus being labeled king of the Jews, he truly does believe that Jesus is a king. And he says to Jesus, can I come into your kingdom when you step into it? So our first response comes from the penitent criminal. You see, the criminal, he is the extreme example given to us in scripture of someone who is called in the very last hours. Called at five o'clock to work for the hour. But what work did he really do? You know, many people ask Jesus this same question. What work is it Jesus, that we must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responded to them and he said this, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one that he has sent. This is the divine work that Jesus calls all his followers to do. And for some of us, it is only when all other options are completely exhausted and when life is so lament and there is nothing we can do anymore, that we find that Jesus is all that we can hope in, that he is all that we can trust in and cling to. The criminal on the cross gained salvation the way all Christians gain salvation. Whether we've been Christians for years or decades, it is because we believed in him who died for us. You see, what is the great marvel here for the criminal? He is the last invited into the kingdom in a way, and yet he is the first one walking in. Just imagine it for a second, the very first time that the gates of heaven have been opened since Adam 
And Jesus is about to walk in through those gates and who has he got holding his hand with? It's a criminal. This is the first person walking in with Jesus. This criminal typifies the vast amount of brothers and sisters that are in the kingdom of God, who the world and who the church have scorned. They've given up on them. There's no hope for them, they say. People like this criminal, they live with a condemnation in their head that there is no hope for them. And it's justly so. They see their sins with 20-20 vision. Their lives are deserving of condemnation and they're not trying to hide the fact. But they have such beauty in their faith in this. They are the most trusting of the Lord in his grace. They have no good works that they can plead to. They don't try to rely on anything that they have for themselves. They aren't looking to justify themselves. All they have is Jesus on a cross for them. And it's beautiful. Do you, like the criminal, perhaps lament your life and the decisions that you've made? Do you, like the criminal, know in your heart that there is a judgment for you and it is deserving of condemnation? Like the criminal, perhaps you don't have much time left. You wish things could be different. You hope some good might come out of the misery of life. There is comfort for you on Good Friday. No matter how dark your history is, no matter how many broken decisions you've made, Jesus has come to bring good into broken lives, even in the last hour like the criminal. And I tell this to you because God's grace is most strongly displayed in those who are lost. You might be seen last in the world, you might be seen last in the church, but God, by his grace, he has made you first. For he loves to display the depth of his grace to the worst of them. This is the comfort of your Messiah who bled and died for you on the cross. As it came to about midday, <clears throat> the sun failed to give its light for about three hours, whether that was global or just kind of local to the scene, we don't know. But what it does express to us is that the heavens were declaring that something was taking place. There were signs in heavens above that God was at work over the sacrifice of Jesus. But even more than this, the curtain in the temple, it separated, that did separate the people from God and God from the people. It was split, it was divided. And what's important here to note is the way in which Luke is describing these events. You see, in all the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark, it always happens that the sun goes dim, Jesus breathes his last, and then the curtain temples, the temple curtains are split in two. But for Luke, he strains it the other way. He says the sun went dim, then the curtain split, and then Jesus breathed his last. Because unlike the other Gospels, he is not expressing so much Jesus' right to go into the Holy of Holies, though he does have that right to go in. He is expressing that God, the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, was pleased with the sacrifice. It was acceptable to him. Now, this could just sound like a whole bunch of Christian jargon, so I'll try to put it as straightforward as I can. The book of Luke, Luke is written to a man called Theophilus. 
And he wants to know that the faith that he's putting in Jesus is true, is right. He wants to make sure he's got the right religion because there is a surplus of Greco-Roman and pagan religions. And guess what? They all have sacrifices to them. How do you know that this religion is true apart from all the other religions going on? How do we even know that Jesus' sacrifice is what God really wants? And this is what Luke is expressing. He's saying, look, the God who is in heaven, the sign that he gave, he is the same one that lives in the temple with the Jews. This is the true, the one and the only God. And him splitting the curtains is the sign that he finds Jesus' sacrifice acceptable. And this is the way in which people come into a true relationship with God. This is the way in which people come into salvation. And this is why Christianity so firmly pronounces that there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. There is no other way except through the God of the Jews, and there is no other way to earn salvation except to receive it through the forgiveness of sins. It is exclusively and only through the Son who bled and died. And the work that has been given to you, the work that has been given to me, the work that has been given to everyone, even if you're an unbeliever, is to believe in him who did this work for you. After the curtain was torn into two, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. There's three things that I noted that we can learn just from what Jesus says here. Firstly, although Jesus was murdered by the evilness of humanity and by the schemes of the evil uh, spiritual forces that are at work, his life was not taken from him. He gave it up. It was God in control of the situation. Second, although Jesus was in the darkest moment of his life, he still calls God Father, the most intimate name that you can ascribe to him. This shows that even in this time, he still sees the love of his God and his Father. And lastly, even though the will of God was to slay him, Jesus still entrusts that the Father will deliver him from his cross. What application and what comfort is there for us? There is every comfort for those who believe in their crucified Messiah. First, your life, although it suffers from the human condition and brokenness of the world and humanity's sin, and though it might go through the oppression of evil spiritual forces, your life never suffers loss nor death meaninglessly. Just as there is a God at control on the hill of Golgotha, there is a God at work and in control of the crosses that you bear for his name's sake. And he is working all of it, even the most evil and the most broken parts of it, for your good and for his glory. Second, the pain and the lament of this world and the sorrows that you feel is not an indicator that God does not love you, nor has he forsaken you. You can still call him Father in the trials, and you can still know that he loves you in the darkest valleys, just as our Lord did. And lastly, 
Even if God never chooses to remove the pain of the trial, we can still entrust that he will ultimately deliver us from all evil, just as he delivers Christ from the cross. I know that it can be very hard to see the goodness of God in dark situations. And it's also very impossible to trust God in the dark times if you're not fully convinced that he is always good in every situation. But that, funnily enough, is exactly where the centurion finds the goodness of God, with Christ on a cross. It says, when the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. Here's the second person we meet, the centurion, and his response. Now the centurion, he is a Gentile. He's an ungodly man. He knows nothing. We should not expect him to understand anything about God. But upon witnessing the signs in the heavens and the words of Jesus on the cross, even the eyes of the ungodly are open to the activity of God working through Christ. And in it, he brings glory to God. That is to say that he magnifies the Father in heaven by proclaiming that the man on the cross was righteous. That is, he was innocent, or to put it in more a theological sense, he was right with God. And so what we have here is a picture of an ungodly man worshipping at the feet of Jesus, and he's the only one. This man typifies those who are ungodly or the non-religious. You really knew nothing of Jesus. You didn't come in at the last hour like the criminal, but you definitely didn't come in first with the religious. And like the centurion, it's the misery of the day that Christ was revealed to you. You didn't know much. In fact, you knew nothing at all, really. But you were satisfied with that which God revealed to you. And in joy and in delight of being met with the crucified Messiah in your darkest moments, you're one of the most exuberant in all of God's family. You're the type that pours the alcohol down into the sink because you just love God so much and you long long not to live like that anymore. You're the type that happily worships, boldly proclaims amongst everyone who Jesus is. You feel no shame. You are so confirmly convinced in that which God has given you. You might not be perhaps the most inclined to all things theological or be able to express deep truths like the centurion, but you bring so much glory to God in that which you do know because you fully trust yourself to it. This is how the cross of Christ can change the hearts of the ungodly and bring them into the kingdom. The comfort that I have for Christians like this who came in these hours, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be ashamed that you don't know big fancy Christian words, that you can't say all the books in their order in the Bible, that you can't say a really big excellent prayer, but they're short and they're simple and they're quiet. You're not prim and proper with religion, but your faith is gold because you firmly believe in that which you know. Man, God's not ashamed of you. In fact, he admires that in all the worldliness you can see him. That is your comfort on Good Friday. 
After Jesus died, and all that remains is his lifeless body upon the cross, the whole hysteria of the crowd wanting to kill him wore off, and a somber tone broke through the air. Once they really kind of recognized what had taken place, the signs in heaven, putting someone to death that is sitting there praying for you, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And they even see the strength that remains in him. You know, many people couldn't talk as they were dying on the cross because you were choking to death. But Jesus spoke in a loud voice. And it strikes them that he gives his life up. And it says they struck their chest. In other words, they felt remorse for what took place. And they repented knowing what had happened was evil. Now, I'm not saying that the crowds in this moment received forgiveness, but they perceived what was happening was wrong. But as what is beautiful about this crowd that in a few days, when Peter preaches, many of those who sat there saying crucify Jesus will be the ones receiving salvation later on. This crowd, it typifies those of you who should have known God much earlier in your life. You were taught about Jesus from a very young age. You had the privilege of going to church. You had the honor of a Christian school. You were very much always available to respond to the gospel message, but you didn't even even though you know you should have. Like the crowds, you once raised a fist in rebellion to God. You knew what he did for you. You even felt remorse when you heard the gospel message, but still you were unmoved to repent and to turn. You are not in the last hour like the criminal. You are not the ungodly who knows nothing. You are the Christian by association of proximity. But in your hearts, you've never received Lord as your crucified Messiah. The Lord has called out to you from the marketplace for quite some time. But it's at midday that you finally receive the call. Midday Christians, they're complex Christians. You strongly lament that you could have come much earlier when he initially called. But still God has given you much time for work, to work wholeheartedly for him. And this you do because you know the beauty now. <clears throat> the Good Friday comfort for you is this. God brought you into his kingdom at his appointed time, not yours. Just as the crowds do not receive forgiveness at the cross, but much later on, it was according to God's will that they would come in later. God isn't lamenting your late arrival. He's rejoicing that you came in when you did. Your Messiah that you see upon the cross that you initially rejected forgives you of the former rejections. The next group who responds to Jesus' death on the cross are his friends. Those who knew him, scripture says. And special attention is drawn to the female followers because they are eyewitnesses who can confirm the death, the burial, and the resurrection. They are extremely important to Luke's gospels. The whole testimony is built upon first eyewitnesses. And the women are the only one who saw it all. But what you will note here is the difference with Jesus' friends from the rest of the groups is this. They are inactive. They're not doing anything. They remain at a distance. They are not up there like the centurion. 
and they never appear to actually ever go home. They remain with their Lord. I could only assume that they were in shock. If you were traveling around for three years with someone that you considered to be your very best friend, and he has been the whole time teaching you that soon, very soon, friends, I'll bring the kingdom. Don't worry, all sorrow will be joy. And then immediately you see his dead body on a cross. Your hopes dashed, your joy in him in ash, your spirit crushed into a state of despair. Every expectation that you laid upon him is now dead because he is dead. Much could be assumed of their response or their unresponsiveness, but I think it's very safe to say that they're lost. They don't know who they are without their master. They're sheep without a shepherd, servants without their master, children who have lost their parents. They're like a dog that just loves to be by its master's side. They don't know what else to do. They just want to be with the one they call Lord. <clears throat> the friends of Jesus typify those of us who came to Christ quite quickly. You're a Peter or an Andrew or a James or a John. Jesus called out to you and you happily dropped the nets on the ground and you went early in the morning to your master's side. You have no hesitation. In fact, you can't really understand anyone who would choose to do differently. You see how great and amazing he is and have trusted him from the start. And your whole joy in life is that you get to walk with him daily. You, however, also have your struggles. It isn't so much the weight of guilt that you feel over your sins like the criminal does. It's not the limitation of knowledge of God like the ungodly one. Nor do you struggle like the midday Christian lamenting your lateness. Your struggle can be the expectations that you've put upon your Messiah to do things a certain way. You thought it all should have went differently. You thought life should have been differently because you signed up early. You thought your family issues, your relationship issues, your romantic issues, your mental issues, your financial issues, they all should have played out a little bit better than they did because you've been dedicated from the start. Jesus should be blessing you more abundantly in the labor because you've been there a long time, longer than those who came in a lot later. But it seems to be that those who came in a lot later are enjoying things a lot more than you are. They seem more joyful, more active, which doesn't make sense because you're much closer. And it seems like all you've gotten for signing up early is a lot of crosses of lament and pain. What comfort is there for you who signed up early? Your comfort is this. Jesus' friendship and fellowship is most intimately felt with those who bear his crosses. No other group has that joy. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, it's true you've bared crosses for Jesus. The work's been hard, but you've been there with him. Jesus doesn't promise easy paths. He doesn't make the work easy all the time. But you came to him because you wanted to be his friend, and that's what you have. Your friend is the one that's crucified for you, and he gladly did it. 
sorry. And yet there's one last type to focus on. And it's the person who comes at nine in the morning, uh, before nine in the morning. This person has been there actually before the sun even rose. They came at daylight. And it's expressed in Joseph. Joseph was known by God as a good and righteous man. That is, he had a right standing with God under the Jewish law. And because he displayed true godly righteousness according to the law, it was not lost on him that Jesus' death was complete unrighteousness and wickedness and that God detests it. And even though he is a man of the law, and even though he is a powerful man as far as religion is concerned, he goes against the Sanhedrin. He honors Jesus and therefore he honors God by taking down the Lord's body before the Sabbath. How much we can read into this and what he thought of Jesus, I'm uncertain. But what we can clearly see from the text is that Joseph, a righteous man under the law, was waiting for the kingdom of God to come and he saw that Jesus had a place in ushering that in and he honored this man of God. Joseph typifies those of us who have always grown up in a Christian religious household, whereby the faith of your parents is your faith. Not to say that you do not have your own personal faith, but the Lord has blessed you with generational faith that's been passed along. And what has been passed along down from your parents and from your ancestors, it is genuine, just as Joseph's ancestral belief in Judaism is genuine and righteous to God. Unlike those who are cold in the morning, you would never say you felt cold per se, but that you've always been. You were in the field before the sun even rose. Not to say that conversion didn't take place in you, as it must for all, but that conversion probably looks a lot more like daily progression in the family household. You can't pinpoint the exact hour you drop the nets. You just know that you've always been walking that way. The beauty of a faith like this, and parents should pray for this kind of faith in their children more, is that at the very core of all that you are, you literally cannot imagine a world in which God does not exist. You can't fathom what it's like to sit outside that spectacle. This is the kind of generational faith that gives you deep clarity, deep insight, a deep wisdom into the things of God, just like it has for Joseph. You display generally deep piety. You have a quite a good grasp on religion and its duties. And it's been developed for you well by your parents and you hold on to those things. It's not necessarily bad, but it's what you're accustomed to. However, you have your struggles that are unlike the rest. Like Joseph, you're happily awaiting the kingdom of God and you're honoring Jesus with all your family traditions that have come down the line. But it can be a struggle for people like this to really grasp the grace of God that comes through the cross. These kinds of people, they've been working in the field longer than anyone. You understand how to do the job better than anyone. Morality, virtues, godly discernment, wisdom, you're profound with because it's developed. But sometimes it's easy to confuse the idea that your good work is the reason that you are in the vineyard and not the fact that God elected you to go into the vineyard. 
See, the generosity of God that the early workers get is the same that we all get. It was still cold, even if you grew up in the religious household. The comfort for you on Good Friday is this. The Jesus that you so desperately want to honor with your whole life is honored most of all when you rejoice in his divine election of you through the death of his son. I don't know what Jesus thought, uh, Joseph thought of Jesus when he took him down off the cross. He saw a godly man worthy of being honored, I know that much. But I don't know if he fully perceived that the lifeless body that he held in his arms was the way of salvation. Your Lord that you have honored your whole life must be received as your crucified Messiah on the cross. And you receive it the same way that the penitent criminal receives it. I hope that this message has brought comfort to you in a way that God knows that you need to hear it this morning. And I hope that it causes in you a heart of celebration for the very different variety of ways that people respond to our same Lord and Saviour. I want to finish with a little note on Sabbath rest. After uh, Joseph laid Jesus' body in the tomb, the women went and witnessed where he laid. The ladies went home after he was put in the tomb and they started to prepare the different ingredients for his ceremonial burial. However, they were unable to achieve it. And the reason that they were unable to achieve it is because the Sabbath day had come. And it's commanded of all God's people that on the Sabbath, you must rest. Sabbath rest, we know from the very beginning, has always been God's design for humanity. On it, he rested, so his creation must rest. Jesus, like his father, has been at work. And on Friday, on today, he finishes that work. And on Saturday, the Sabbath day, tomorrow, his body is at rest in the grave and his spirit is at rest in paradise with both the criminal and his father in heaven. Had the women not obeyed the Sabbath law and decided to prepare Jesus' body for burial, they would have dishonored God because no godly work can ever be done when God is not at work. Hear that again. No godly human work is ever done when God is not at work. And he commands that you rest. He commands that you must rest in him. All has been achieved for you. And if you think about it, they just witnessed the death of their friend. And the very first command that comes down the line from God is this, rest. There is nothing else you can do but rest. You cannot earn salvation, you cannot work for salvation, you must rest in your Messiah crucified. We trust in the deliverance of our heavenly Father just as our Lord did. He is our salvation and our great work that God has given us is simply to trust in what he has done on our behalf. Is this the kind of rest 
that you're looking for this Easter weekend? Is this the rest that you have in your Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you are honoured through these words. And I pray that we would not miss the opportunity of this weekend to just relax, not just our bodies, but our whole very beings in you. To trust that you have done all things for us. To rejoice in the comfort that you give us, in the glad tidings that you are for us and you are not against us. That you love your people that you're for their good and their betterment, and that you will raise them. In your name I pray. Amen.